Hi, this is Christian McBride, and you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Welcome to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live round the clock and round the world on WBAI.org. I am your host, David Brand, coming to you live from my home studio as we continue COVID distancing and limiting the spread of the virus in New York City. I want to acknowledge our engineer, Sean Rhodes, who's at the controls this morning. Thank you, Sean. And to all our listeners today, thanks for joining us. City Watch is a weekly news show covering politics, justice, and social issues in New York City, our state, and our surrounding tri-state area. We have a great show today. Coming up soon, we will have U.S. Representative Carolyn Maloney talking about the legislative fight to save the Postal Service. And to add even more context to that conversation, I invited a former letter carrier to the show. In a few minutes, ex-mailman turned professional explainer John Welsh will break down exactly how federal cuts to the Postal Service affect mail delivery. He's a vice president at SNP Communication, one of my closest friends, and I look forward to hearing his perspective in a few moments. After John, we'll shift gears and talk with legal aid staff attorney Ellen Davidson about the looming eviction crisis in New York as the state fails to establish adequate supports for tenants and small landlords. Later, we'll open the phone lines for listeners. Now, before we get started, I want to say a very happy birthday to my mom, Joan. Happy birthday, mom. I love you. My co-host Jeff Simmons is off today, and as we, continue, as we continue to alternate hosting duties to limit the spread of COVID-19, I look forward to getting back in the studio with Jeff over on Atlantic Avenue in Burham Hill. But he and I, for the past five months or so, have been broadcasting remotely ever since mid-March. But you know who never gets to work like that, who never gets to work remotely, never gets to work virtually? Well, here's a hint. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night, nor freaking once-in-a-century pandemic stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That's right. I'm talking about letter carriers. And I'll be honest, until very recently, until the big cuts to the U.S. Postal Service started making news, I took for granted the people who deliver our mail day in and day out. But as I've been reporting on how the cuts to the Postal Service are affecting our local letter carriers, our local mail delivery... I started talking with a lot of letter carriers, and honestly, their commitment and their pride in their work are both inspiring. Over the past few months, the new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, a Trump ally and mega donor, has slashed overtime for letter carriers. He eliminated vital sorting machines and even removed blue mailboxes. These structural changes have delayed mail delivery and ground down the Postal Service ahead of a major absentee voting initiative in the November presidential election. These moves are part of a decades-long effort to transform and ultimately privatize the Postal Service. That's the goal of many conservatives dating back to the 1970s. But the timing has alarmed many Democrats and progressives who say the changes are a means of choking out mail-in vote voting and discrediting absentee ballot initiatives. I want to bring someone on the show who has actually done the job and can describe how this all impacts the work of letter carriers. And it so happens that one of my best friends is a former letter carrier. John Welsh is also the host of the comedy podcast WFRD, and he's a professional explainer. Seriously, he's a vice president at the company SNP Communications, where he travels, or I guess now Zoom conferences, around the world, teaching people how to deliver effective presentations and become better public speakers. So honestly, I'm a little nervous to have him on here because he's going to be grading my performance on a seven-part rubric. And yet, I'm secure enough for it. So here he is. John Welsh, welcome to City Watch. David, first time, long time. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for coming on. So take us through the day-to-day of a letter carrier. What do you do when you arrive at work? What do you do when you come back? Where do you use the bathroom? When you get to the office, it's usually around 7.30 in the morning, and you're in the office for about two and a half hours, maybe three hours, and you're sorting your mail for the day. 
So the mail gets dropped off very early in the morning, maybe five or six. You sort it in the office, and then you load up your truck, and you go out in the street for about five and a half hours. So that makes an eight-hour day. You have lunch in there. Bathroom is a little interesting. You have to find the spots on the route that make sense, whether it's a public restroom, whether it's in a restaurant where you deliver the mail. So there's some improvisation that has to go on when you're out on the route. And so one of the changes that is getting a lot of attention is uh, letter carriers are getting told to go out on their route even before the mail is ready. Can you explain that? Like, how do what how do these changes actually affect the day-to-day work of letter carriers? The ethos of the Postal Service is get the mail out, finish delivering the mail. All the mail for that day goes out no matter what. It seems that these changes make that a little bit harder, where if first they've cut overtime, they've said no more overtime for carriers, and this means that if there is extra mail for that day that you need to deliver, whether it's after a weekend, whether it's after a holiday where volume's more, you can't. So now mail is getting backed up. The the day-to-day delivery also in the morning when the trucks come to drop off the mail, they're being told to leave on time even if the mail isn't fully loaded into the trucks. So now it's creating a backlog of mail, and it's, it's basically just a pile of mail now that has to go out in future days, excuse me, where they aren't really, they don't have a systematic approach to get the mail out after that uh, because it's just basically a pile of mail. And they say, well, hopefully we get this out in future days. So now it's, it's a little concerning with the, with the delays in mail because you see it from packages, you see it from medication, you see it from checks that have to go out, and then with the election coming up, ballots too. So how would this stress you out if you were working right now or, you know, having letter carriers or postal workers in your family? This must be pretty stressful. Would would say so, yes. When you have conflicting priorities of get the mail out but also get back on time, it creates definite stress in the carrier where you're watching the clock but also looking at how much mail you have left. And you don't want to bring mail back. It's 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 not what the Postal Service is about. It's about getting the mail out that day. So to see the, the disjointed priorities that the carriers have to go through, it must be a lot of mental gymnastics to try to make it happen. I have a letter carrier who's, like, really friendly. She knows me and my wife, Katie. She knows our son, and she's always checking in on him to uh, see how he's doing. And I, I imagine she has this kind of relationships with people along the route. How long did it take you to learn your route, and uh, what did you learn about some of the people that you were serving? I had the benefit of learning a lot of routes. I was the young guy. I was considered the float. So basically, if someone was out that day on their scheduled day off, I would take their route for that day. And then the next day would be on a different route. You get to know a lot of people. I didn't get to know them as well as the regular carrier on the route who would know the ins and outs of their family, know know what kind of mail they get on which day. They would leave you notes, though. So they would say, hey, listen, this person expects medication every week. This person might come to you for a check uh, on on a certain day of the month. Give it to them, even if it's out of order. They show you their ID, and you see the address lines up. Give them their mail for that day. So the, the relationship between the customer and the carrier really grows over time, and they would be not nervous, but they would be a little apprehensive to let the new kid on the route because it might mess with with customer expectations. I tried to do my best, but you you can only do what you can. Can you talk about the business model of the Postal Service? Like, Why does the Postal Service have to turn a profit? I think everyone thinks it's just a national agency, but it's actually, it's a business. It used to be a national agency. It used to be part of the, well, it is still part of the executive branch, but there was, it was part of the cabinet. There was the, 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 the Postmaster General, and uh, it was called the Department of the Post Office. And then in 1970, they reorganized it with the Postal Reorganization Act into a standalone government-run corporation, essentially. The Postmaster General is now appointed by a board of governors. The board of governors is selected by the president and has to go through congressional approval. But now they are on their own for their balance sheet. So profits and losses, revenue, the Postal Service has to be self-sufficient. And that's all well and good. So from 1970, when this was enacted, also within that Reorganization Act, carriers got the right to collectively bargain, which was uh, born of a strike that that happened in 1970, about a week-long strike that that 
slowed mail service down, obviously, because of carriers delivering it. But the the 2006 Postal Enhancement and Accountability Act made them pre-fund health benefits for carriers for about 75 years in the future. And that nets out to approximately around five and a half, six billion dollars a year that they have to spend pre-funding health benefits before they can spend a dime on operations. So now there's the business model of we have to make a lot of money selling 50 cent stamps and then also pre-fund 75 years of health benefits, which no other federal, <laughs> no other federal agency has to do. So to turn a profit, you have to make X plus $6 billion a year or something like that. So exactly, yeah. sounds like they're hamstrung by that. We have another minute left. Um, you know, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy just testified before the Senate on Friday. He's appearing before the Democratic-controlled House on Monday. We have a couple local members of Congress, including our next guest, Carolyn Maloney, and uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez will be participating in that questioning. What do you want to hear? asked, and what do you want to hear from the Postmaster General during that questioning? I think because the spotlight is on the election, it's basically, what is your plan for election mail, for ballots that, that have to go out? What is the protocol? What are you telling carriers? Because this is unprecedented. So what is the plan, or when will you show us the plan? I think also just any sort of questioning that gets at what's behind all of these changes, because the changes that, that are being made right now are all in the name of efficiency. So cutting over time, saying the trucks are going out on time, whether or not the mail is ready. Those things, it's under the guise of efficiency, but is it corruption? Is it incompetence? Is it greed? What is it that is driving these changes uh, other than just the financial pressure because postal service lost like $8.8 .8 billion last year. So there is, there is an element of financial solvency, but then just any sort of question that gets at what's really going on underneath, who he talked to, who the, the Board of Governors talked to, because I know Steve Mnuchin was involved as well, trying to court changes from the, the Postal Board of Governors, which is unprecedented also, where the federal government usually doesn't get involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the Postal Service. So anything that, that can dig a little bit deeper into, yeah, efficiency, but what else? Well, thank you for coming on the show, John, and explaining that all to us. Thanks so much for having me, David. And if I could just wish a very happy birthday to the special birthday boy. Happy birthday, Connor. <laughs> happy birthday, Connor. That was John Welsh, a former letter carrier, host of the comedy podcast WFRD, and now the vice president of solutions design at SNP Communications, a firm that teaches people and companies how to be effective communicators and effective public speakers. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org 24 hours a day, all day, every day, online and in your radios. Now, you just heard from John Welsh, a former letter carrier. Let's hear from the lawmaker who is among the leaders of the legislative fight to save the Postal Service, especially with the 2020 election potentially on the line. Representative Carolyn Maloney was first elected to Congress in 1992, and she represents parts of three boroughs, the east side of Manhattan, uh, northern Brooklyn, and western Queens. She's also a ranking member of the House Oversight Committee and sponsored legislation to fund the post office and restore the services and overtime that has been cut. Her bill passed the House on Saturday uh, in an unprecedented recall for members of Congress to come back to D.C. to vote on this emergency bill. A version will be voted on in the Republican-controlled Senate in the next few days. Tomorrow, Monday, Maloney will be on the committee questioning Postmaster General Louis DeJoy about the cuts to services and overtime hours. At the same time, her own narrow primary election victory on in June, which actually stretched well into July as they counted the votes here in New York, that victory has played a major role in Donald Trump's efforts to discredit absentee voting. Several thousand mail-in votes were disqualified by the State Board of Elections for technical errors or late deliveries in the primary for New York's 12th Congressional District. Her main opponent, there were four people in the race, but the closest opponent, named Suraj Patel, sued the board to reinstate the ballots. A federal judge last month ordered the state to count votes in that race, as well as every other ballot in the state that was disqualified because it arrived a couple days late or because it was missing a postmark. 
Now, Trump and other conservatives have latched onto that race, mischaracterizing what happened to say that votes were lost or tampered with. But two weeks ago, we had attorney Ali Najmi on the show to explain what really happened. Najmi represented Patel, Maloney's challenger, in the lawsuit against the state, which led to the full vote count. He said New York is actually set up well to address the issues that were exposed during that primary. And the benefit of the primary was it enabled us to find out what what went wrong and to correct it ahead of November. On Tuesday, I went to a press conference with representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a former City Watch guest, Gregory Meeks, and Tom Suozzi. They shredded the Postmaster General and the President for their rhetoric and for the Postal Service cuts. Meeks specifically said the attack on the Postal Service was a hallmark of totalitarianism and that the lies being used to discredit mail-in voting reminded him of right-wing authoritarians. In fact, he said, and this is a quote, if you listen to the words of the fascist dictators of the 1930s, you will hear huge similarities to what Trump says. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy testified the other day uh, on Friday before the Senate, and he called those kind of claims totally ridiculous. He said this has nothing to do with the election, that that's a smear campaign by Democrats. So this is getting very political, and it's keeping it in the spotlight as one of the biggest issues locally and nationally. So I had the fortune of talking with Representative Carolyn Maloney about that, as well as the legislative fight to restore postal service cuts and her own primary race. Here's that interview recorded Thursday, two days before Congress members returned to D.C. for the vote. Woman Carolyn Maloney, welcome back to City Watch. Great to speak with you again, David Brand, and thank you for inviting me on this critical issue. Particularly during a pandemic and with a major election coming, we are more dependent on our mail than ever. How do the current actions of the Trump administration and Postmaster General Louis DeJoy fit into the decades-long effort to privatize the Postal Service? Well, uh, first of all, I am deeply and totally uh, opposed to any privatization of the Postal Service. Uh, The post office predates the Constitution. Um, It is a a pillar of our democracy. It's enshrined in our Constitution. It's one of the things that holds this country together. And one stamp can take your birthday card to your grandmother or your grandmother's card to you uh, all over the country, three blocks away or 3,000 miles away. So it's a wonderful institution uh, providing medicines to veterans and seniors that need it during the pandemic, packages, checks, you name it, it's there to serve people. So anything to slow it down hurts the post office and then moves people to alternative ways of moving their mail. Uh, Usually mail moves in two to three days. I'm now told by uh, people in the post office that we're backed up five to six days. Mm -hmm. So if you're a businessman and you need to move mail quickly, you're going to move to an alternative source of uh, moving that mail. So it undermines the post surface, uh, undermines its ability to provide services and to be self-sustaining and to be the American institution that it is. And it's uh, what my bill will do. As you know, we're we're coming back into Congress. It's almost unheard of uh, to call Congress back to vote on a bill, but that's what Leader Pelosi's done. She's uh, called everyone back. Uh, Gary Peters, the ranking Democrat on the uh, Homeland Security Committee, is having hearings on Friday, and I'm having hearings on Monday on what happened. My legislation basically reverses uh, the actions to slow down the mail back Mm -hmm. to what they were before they started closing down uh, 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 mailboxes, removing them, uh, taking mail sorting machines out of commission, limiting the amount of time that a truck has to to move mail uh, per day, and and, and limiting time and closing offices and closing uh, time of, of, of services to the community. Every time you close it down, you open the win- window for another uh, uh, privatization firm to come in and pick up that work, and, and it makes the, uh, the, the post office more vulnerable. We're, they're refusing to fund it, so my legislation would fund it mm-hmm. at what, the, what was requested by the uh, Board of Governors, $25 billion. Well, a lot of the changes you just mentioned, I think, may have gone under the radar, if not for the election and not for our reliance on absentee voting. Uh, it might have got lost in the shuffle with response to the COVID crisis. But how did you first learn about the cuts in these structural changes? 
I think I first learned about it from uh, uh, union members in the district that I represent, that they were concerned about the cutbacks at the sorting machines and this type of thing. But what was really alarming is when the president on national television, he came out and said that uh, he was not for funding the post office and that he was not for mail-in balloting. And 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 in the middle of a pandemic and with an election coming, uh, I, I found it shocking that he would admit such a thing uh, when so many people are more dependent on the mail than ever. And many people want to vote by by mail because of the covid crisis. Uh, so this was a this was a wake up call uh, like a thunderbolt when he said that the next day, probably in response to the American public that responded uh, saying they want to save the post office, he reversed himself. He now says he wants to. Anyway, we'll see what, what he wants to do. We're going to pass uh, my bill on Saturday and hopefully through the Senate and put it on his desk for his signature. So DeJoy, the Postmaster General, said the other day that he's suspending operational changes until after the election. So why is this still an issue? Well, we need to trust but verify how do you know he's going to suspend these activities? He never consulted with us in the first place. He just started doing them uh, in a massive way without even telling anyone. And, uh, and I don't trust him. So, number one, if that's what he wants to do, let's put the reality of a law behind it. But also he has said that he will not replace the sorting machines that he's closed down, nor will he replace the mailboxes that he's removed and my legislation calls upon him to replace them until after the election or after the end of the pandemic or until after January 1st, uh, 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 2021. Do you see this as an attempt to discredit the Postal Service ahead of mail-in voting, ahead of the election? I would say it's certainly not helpful. Hmm. It's certainly uh, not helpful at all. And it... Uh, uh, it, it could discourage some people from voting by mail I was because at, of this constant attack on the post serv- service. I was at a press conference the other day with some of your colleagues, uh, Congressman Greg Meeks, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Tom Suozzi. And Meeks said it was reminiscent of what you would see from 1930s fascist dictators. Um, what do you think of that assessment? Well, uh, what I'm most familiar with is what this administration did with census mm. by adding the citizenship question. Uh, Democrats had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to stop the action, uh, which discouraged uh, the undocumented from being counted. And as you know, the Constitution calls on everybody to be counted. Uh, so this uh, put a lot of fear out into uh, the undocumented community that is entitled to the services uh, They live in our country. They need the schools, the hospitals, uh, the roads, the all of the funding formulas that the census is tied to. Uh, So that was a a a tactic, I thought, to discourage people from filling out their census form. And the census, as you know, is not only tied to one point five trillion dollars that's distributed every year. It's representation. It's your representation in Congress all the way to the school board. So I am familiar with that action, and and I think it was very similar to that action. So I guess you're saying this fits into like a pattern of uh, eroding civic participation, uh, and now in this case enfranchisement, but maybe not willing to go as far as saying it's uh, reminiscent of fascists? Well, I'm I'm familiar with what they're doing right now, and and, uh, I'm not – I'm not familiar with everything they were doing back in 1935. Hmm. So maybe I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not familiar. It's hard for me to comment on. It's certainly not something that I, I, I think I'm doing everything I can to stop it. I don't believe in it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, uh, it's wrong. It's illegal. Uh, I've talked to uh, Tish James. Our attorney general has filed a suit to stop them. She is being joined by 20 other attorney generals across the, uh, the country claiming this is an illegal activity. And I believe it is an illegal act- activity. My legislation will stop it. Your own primary election has come up frequently uh, in conservative attempts to discredit absentee voting. And the president himself has cited the election, which you won, 
Uh, he's saying that mail-in voting doesn't work because so many voted, votes were invalidated. Uh, and he has said in the past that they should have done that that election, that primary election again. What is he getting wrong when he when he says that? Well, what he's getting wrong is that I, I won the election on uh, on, on on the day on June 23rd, which was election day, uh, but they did, but there were 35,000 people who voted on election day. Many more voted by absentee, roughly 65,000, and they had to process their votes. Now, a lot of the votes came in the day of the election or the day after the election, but whatever, people were claiming that uh, the ballots that were not stamped, the law says now when a ballot comes in, it has to be stamped and processed by the post office. Uh, my opponent claimed that there were thousands of ballots that were in dispute because they were not uh, stamped. There was a lawsuit brought, not by my opponent, but by someone else that said all of the ballots should be counted uh, till uh, for a week after the election. And... Uh, Many people thought that extends the time of an election another week later, but that some votes could have come in at the last minute and were not counted, although they did come in uh, before June 23rd. So we agreed, all of us, I agreed and I and everyone I was running against agreed that we would count those disputed uh, ballots. They counted them not only for the 23rd, the election day, but also the 24th and the 25th that were unstamped. So when they were unstamped, they didn't know when they came in. So they, uh, if they were in the hands of the uh, Board of Elections, then they would count them. Now, I, I represent three boroughs. In the borough of Manhattan, it was not a problem. They were stamped uh, by the post office. And in the borough of Queens, there was no problem. They were stamped. I think they came up with 10 votes that were not stamped. In Brooklyn, it turned out to be 600 votes that were not stamped, hmm. uh, and those votes were counted. But uh, even and it, it didn't change the outcome of the election uh, hardly at all. I still had uh, over 4,000 4, uh, margin, but it didn't affect the outcome of the of the election at all. But they were counted. All of the unstamped uh, ballots in Brooklyn were also counted. So that was what it was about. So I don't know why he keeps uh, referring to that. Uh, the His margin of victory was probably uh, uh, more narrow than mine. So maybe we should redo his election. I don't know. He likes to attack me. It could be that I'm the chair of the Oversight Committee, which is conducting quite a few investigations as we speak uh, on many different issues, including the post office at this point. Getting back to, getting back to the post office a bit. So... The U.S. military doesn't have to turn a profit. The National Park Service uh, is free for visitors, doesn't have to turn a profit. And yet the Postal Service is treated as a business. It is a business, even though it's hamstrung by a mandate to pre-fund its pension plan. So why do we continue treating the Postal Service as a as a business uh, and not just allowing it to rely more on government subsidy? Well, that's a very, very good point. And particularly during this pandemic, all of those areas that you mentioned, government subsidized substantially. We are subsidizing the, uh, the small businesses through the PPP loans. We're helping large businesses. We're helping corporations, not-for-profits, schools. We're helping everyone as they handle this pandemic. So why, out of all of, the, all of America, are you pointing a finger at the post office and saying, we're not going to help you. Now, what, what kind of sense does that make? Mm. So number one, particularly during the time of a pandemic and an important election that only happens every four years. So that is a really ridiculous way to approach it when you see that we have tried to help everyone. Why not the post office and the board of governors that is appointed is our Republicans appointed by the Republican president are, is calling for the $25 billion to make up for the losses. This isn't even getting into the election costs. This is to make up for the losses for everyday service that the Postal Service is providing. And on top of that, 70 postal essential workers have died. 
because of the coronavirus, and over 40,000 have been sick across the nation and quarantined at one point or other. I would also support subsidizing the Postal Service more. Mm. And we passed legislation early this year that took away the pre-funding requirement for retirement uh, Mm. that you mentioned in your question. In our last minute here, we have many influential people, including President Obama, uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama, urging people to go to the polls and many people saying, don't risk voting by mail. Uh, Will you be voting by mail or do you plan to go to your polling place? Well, I I intend to vote early. Mm. I love to vote. I I always uh, go around and check the voting sites in my district to see if they're running well and if everything's in order. So I will be out at the voting sites anyway on Election Day. So I might as well just vote. Um, by, but I think that now that New York State has early voting, there's no lines. And uh, so that we know that we have to practice social distancing with our masks and our gloves and uh, supposedly six feet apart. So that's going to be long lines on Election Day. I would urge everyone to vote early or vote by mail. We have a several ways we can vote. The main way and the main point is that you should vote. And if you vote by mail, I would urge uh, people to vote at least two weeks early, particularly if you know who you're going to vote for. Just go ahead and vote and make sure that your your ballot is processed. We want you to vote, but very importantly, we want want your vote to count. Definitely. Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, thank you for talking with CityWatch. Thank you. That was my interview with U.S. Representative Carolyn Maloney, ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, who sponsored a bill to fund the United States Postal Service with $25 billion and to restore services cut in recent weeks. You are listening to CityWatch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live around the clock and around the world on WBAI.org. I am your host, David Brand. Now, when Maloney was talking about her election, She said ballots were missing stamps, but she actually meant postmarks. That was the issue for many ballots that were initially disqualified in her primary race for New York's 12th congressional district and in contests around the state. So based on arcane New York election law, the state won't count ballot envelopes if they were missing postmarks. And that's something that happens at the post office. It's not something that has anything to do with a mistake by voters. But a federal judge acknowledging that ruled that thousands of ballots that had been rejected because they didn't have postmarks, should be counted as long as they had been received within two days of the election. Maloney's lead is insurmountable, and she declared victory on various occasions, but there's still votes that need to be counted in that race uh, under the federal decision. Those are just some of the absentee voting kinks that were exposed by the primary election in June and a lawsuit against the state board that, you know, really I think is going to help New York remedy problems ahead of the general election. Now, I love being on the air and talking about issues like this, pretty nuanced stuff that we get to have great guests come on the show to help us understand. These are issues affecting everyday New Yorkers, like our audience, who make this station possible. And we can't do WBAI without you. We're continuing our summer membership drive right now, and we hope you will consider making a cash contribution to WBAI to help keep us on the air. It's a tough time for many of us right now, most of us right now, I think, and news organizations like WBAI are definitely included. We depend on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing you great coverage, reporting, and interviews every single day. In recent weeks, CityWatch has featured some really marquee guests talking about big, relevant issues affecting our communities. And just several members of our New York City congressional delegation, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Grace Meng, today Carolyn Maloney returning for the second time in the past few months, uh, Jamal Bowman, soon to be a new member of Congress in the Bronx and in Westchester County, was on the show with my co-host Jeff recently. And we want to continue bringing you that same level of analysis, reporting, interviews. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give2wbai.org. That's give, the number two, wbai.org, and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens and following the prompts. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy. Again, that's 516-620-3602. And when you make that call, you can give a shout-out to the program that inspired you to become a BAI buddy. So 
hopefully that's City Watch. We'd love to hear that. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. Again, that's text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your phone. We appreciate the support. And act now, and this is a pitch I've been making the past few weeks, but act now. And I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor, and we're the only daily English-language print paper in the entire borough of Queens. So if you if you subscribe to become a BAI buddy, send me a DM on Twitter. I am at David F. Brand. Again, at David F. Brand. And let me know you pitched in, and I'll get you that Queen's Daily Eagle soaring into your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. You become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution. Just visit give to WBAI.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing. This is CityWatch on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. For the second portion of our show, we're going to talk about the devastating impact of the COVID-19 economic crisis on tenants, including the hundreds of thousands of renters who have lost their jobs and have been unable to pay their rent consistently across the state. We'll also look at the impact on small landlords who depend on rental income to pay their mortgages and property taxes, many of whom have also lost their job and are in tough times right now. Now, the governor and the state court system froze evictions back in March. Governor Andrew Cuomo issued an executive order that established an eviction moratorium, the first of many executive orders establishing an eviction moratorium, basically saying marshals cannot change the locks on doors. And so the first one expired June 20th. Well, June 20th came and went, and the governor and the court system have issued additional piecemeal measures to halt evictions under the latest order, the moratorium is in effect until October 1st for people whose cases were adjudicated before March 16th, and then for people whose cases were brought after March 17th, March 17th or later. It's an, inde an indefinite suspension right now, but still lacking any clarity about you know, when that might end. At the same time, a newly enacted state law known as the Tenant Safe Harbor Act gives tenants a means to resist eviction in court if they can prove they couldn't pay their rent because of COVID-related reasons. It doesn't mean they're totally safe from eviction, but it gives them another leg to stand on. Still, landlords can seek money judgment, meaning they can't, be, meaning, meaning they can't evict their tenants, but they can still get, seek money from renters who haven't been paying their rent for many months. That will just end up screwing with tenants' credit, affecting their ability to rent another apartment in the future. Despite the temporary moratoriums on evictions, court proceedings have resumed, including eviction cases that began before the moratorium went into effect. So it's all very confusing. And what does it mean? And what's going on right now? And what might the future hold? Fortunately, we have Ellen Davidson, a staff attorney with a legal aid society, on the line to help us better understand what's going on and where people can turn to for support. Ellen Davidson, welcome to City Watch. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me on the show. Thanks for coming. So what is the current state of evictions right now in New York City and New York State? Can someone be evicted right now? And if not, when can evictions resume? Right. Um, so first of all, just to we use the word eviction for so many different things. Um, but uh, if the, the clearest thing we know is that when it comes to being evicted, as in the marshal comes and locks you out of your apartment, that cannot happen now. And it cannot happen um, until after September 30th. Um, so that's pretty clear. Um, the, chief, the chief administrative judge testified at a hearing on Friday at the state Senate. Um, and he suggested that that's, their, that's the court's end date in terms of moratoriums, that people can start being um, locked out of their homes um, by by marshals and sheriffs um, as of October 1st, unless unless the legislature and or the governor acts. Well, it's um, timing then because people are expecting, uh, I guess, predicting a second wave of the coronavirus to hit New York City in the fall, which is right around the time that the moratorium is ending. Yeah, it's horrific timing. I mean, I think one of the things we learned from the coronavirus was um, that people who uh, live in, in homeless shelters um, died at a much higher rate, got COVID and died at a much higher rate 
um, than people who are housed. Um, and so the idea that we would be heading into a resurgence of the virus and have um, hundreds of thousands of people possibly losing their homes at the same time um, is, a, is a terrifying, terrifying idea. So can you talk now, more about that, what you're seeing on the ground from your clients and seeing among the tenants you represent? How are they handling things? This must be incredibly stressful. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's been, you know, for everyone who's gone through what we've all gone through um, since March, this has been um, unsettling, terrifying period of time just because of people's concerns about their health, their children's education. Um, but to add upon that loss of job, loss of income, and the threat of losing your home, it, the stress is, is unbearable. Um, and, you know, we understanding what's going on with housing court in New York City has been difficult because it's been immensely confusing, as you mentioned uh, in your uh, intro. Um, there have been different orders at different times that affect different people. Uh, nothing that has been issued uh, has been done in a way that, it, that uh, is easily understood, um, even by lawyers. And it feels like at every moment the ground is shifting under people's feet. Um, from attorneys, I'm hearing that from judges, the people who are most well-equipped to understand what's going on are having... I'm sorry? Time. So what kind of hope do lay people have and people who don't have that legal background? So where can, where can people go when they need information? Um, so one place, one thing that the city has done is set up um, a tenant helpline. Um, and the way to get to it is call, simply by calling 311 and asking for it. And the, they, they will refer you to a hotline uh, that is staffed by legal service attorneys and providers, um, uh, advocates, um, who can answer people's questions. Um, and so for, if, if people are worried, they're, uh, if someone has, was in court, um, before March and didn't have an attorney um, and now doesn't know what's going to happen, they should definitely call that line. Um, and, it, you know, it, uh, people are being served with new cases. Um, and as soon as someone gets that, they should call that line. Um, because no one needs to run into court. Um, I think it's pretty clear that courts, were, is, courts are a place where people will get sick. Um, if they become as crowded as they were pre-COVID. So there are systems set in place so people don't have to appear in court, but um, it makes sense uh, to get as much help as possible and advice as possible um, while so going through call, the process. Call 311 and ask for the tenant hotline. Help, help, helpline. Tenant helpline. 311, ask for the tenant helpline. Could you just paint the picture? What is it going to look like, like realistically, if the eviction moratorium ends mid-pandemic, uh, get a resurgence here in New York City, and I imagine massive homelessness will only uh, exacerbate the surge of the public health crisis. So tell us what that might look like. Well, we're told by the courts that when the courts closed down in March, there were 200,000 cases on their dockets. For the most part, those are non-payment cases. Um, and we don't have 200,000 people evicted every year. We have much, much less than that. And the reason is that for the most part, people are able to um, uh, deal with, address the money that they owe to their landlord um, and avoid eviction. But since that time, about a million New Yorkers have lost their jobs. And so some of the mechanisms that are in place to make sure that people are able to pay their arrears and, and, and avoid eviction have been upended. In order to get, for example, a one-shot deal from New York City, 
you have to show that you have a future ability to pay. But if your job has disappeared, you will not have that future ability to pay. So routine cases that would have easily been resolved prior to COVID are no longer easily resolvable. Um, and so we have, as I said, those 200,000 um, uh, cases. It's not totally clear whether the Tenant Safe Harbor Act will protect those people, although the courts are asking judges to look at each of those cases to determine whether they fall under the Tenant Safe Harbor Act. Um, and, uh, you know, if all of those, those are, and those are, those are the cases that were in the court system before COVID. Mm -hmm. Then we have to deal with all the people who could end up uh, in the court system um, because now suddenly people who've always paid their rent um, and now they can't. And um, while we haven't seen a rush of people cases being filed, mainly I think because landlords understand that those cases aren't going to move quickly because there is this 200,000 case backlog, um, we're eventually going to see those cases and those cases are going to move forward. Um, and without some more global solution to this problem, um, everyone's going to be evicted. Well, in our last couple minutes here, could you talk about some of those solutions that you and your colleagues are advocating for? What do tenants need and what do landlords need to become whole here and to make sure that they maintain their, their homes, especially during this pandemic? I, I think we need a much, much longer moratorium because the ultimate solutions we need do not seem to be coming quickly. Um, and so I think a long-term term moratorium that allows all of us um, to fight for uh, what is needed. And one of the things is needed is significant funding from Washington. Um, there's in the House of Representatives passed a bill in March, or no, sorry, May or June, um, that contained a $100 billion uh, rent relief uh, program. Um, and there's some thought that about $10 billion of that could come to New York State. Um, and one way to make sure that landlords who are struggling because their tenants can't afford to pay rent is to provide rent relief to those tenants so those landlords uh, get the money that is owed to them. Um, and so it is really important that the federal government um, step in and provide the relief uh, that we desperately need. Well, Ellen Davidson, staff attorney with the Legal Aid Society, Thank you for joining City Watch. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ellen Davidson, staff attorney with the Legal Aid Society, talking about the looming threat of a, a major eviction crisis here in New York City, in New York State, and really throughout the country without some some federal action or uh, at the very least some more state action here in New York. Now, you have been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, David Brand. I want to open up the phone lines for listeners, especially today we talked with uh, we talked about cuts to the U.S. Postal Service. We talked with a former letter carrier. I want to open up the phone lines to letter carriers, if you're out there listening, former letter carriers. And tenants who are at risk of being evicted during this during the COVID-19 crisis, especially if uh, the threat of eviction is because of something related to COVID, maybe you lost your job, maybe you your hours were cut back, maybe you had unforeseen medical bills, you can call 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877, and share your experience with us. Let us know how COVID has affected you and how you are getting relief or uh, if you're struggling to get relief. Now, while we wait for people to call in, I want to just do another pitch for our summer membership drive because WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners, hopefully some who are about to call in right now. Uh, we want to continue bringing you great coverage and interviews. In recent weeks, we've had some really great guests providing analysis just like today on evictions, on cuts to the U.S. Postal Service. We want to continue bringing you that caliber of reporting and interviews to New York City. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to 
WBAI.org. That's give the number two, WBAI.org. And clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens, follow the prompts. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3602. Again, that's 516-620-3602. Say you want to become a BAI buddy and give us a shout out on City Watch. Say you're becoming a BAI buddy because you just love listening to City Watch on Sundays at 10 a.m. Me and my co-host Jeff Simmons and our news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston. You can also text WBAI to 41444. Follow the prompts on your phone. That's text WBAI to 41444. We appreciate the support. Now act now, and I'll throw in a free digital subscription to my newspaper, the Queens Daily Eagle. I'm the editor, and we're the only daily print paper in the entire borough of Queens. And if you subscribe to WBAI to become a BAI buddy, DM me on Twitter. Slide into my DMs. I'm at David F. Brand. Again, that's at David F. Brand. Let me know. I'll get you the Queen's Daily Eagle delivered to your inbox every morning. That's double the bang for your buck. You become a BAI buddy and an Eagle Amigo with one monthly contribution. Just visit give2wbai.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing. And I think we have, do we have a caller on the line, Sean? We got two. We got two. Could, should we, could we go to the first one? Please. Great. Hi. Thank you for calling City Watch. What's your name? Uh, George. George. Like and where are, you, where are you from, George? Call from New Jersey. New Jersey. Thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Well, uh, you know, the renting, and uh, that's all well and good, the uh, problem with the rent and, and paying the, the landlords and everything like that. But with the government shutting down your jobs all over the country, what are the American people going to say when they come for your taxes or basically come for your home for failure to pay your taxes? that they crippled your you from. So you're going to be losing your home directly from your government because you couldn't pay the taxes that they're, they're enforcing on us and because they enforced this uh, pandemic upon us. And they did definitely force this pandemic upon us. I mean, anybody that doesn't see this as an economic attack to the American economy, the American people, and the American way of life doesn't have their eyes open. Well, now, George, all the billionaires are going to be bailed out. We've already seen this, and the U.S. Post Office being attacked is a plan to, to uh, for the Americans to pay top dollar to all these FedExes and all these UPSs and all these other things that our, our, our billionaire king is all for, because he's all for personal billionaire profit. So he's well, going to well, go well, all well, in on this. And so, you know. George, we got just because we only have a few more minutes left. So I hear what you're saying. You're saying that it sounds like there was – restrictions imposed by the government to try to limit the spread of covid but because of that people are out of work and now you know struggling to pay their taxes their mortgages for the case of tenants pay their rents and yet there's no relief forthcoming it seems has that been your experience can you in just 30 seconds tell us did you lose your job um how is it impacting you yeah I, i've been working through through the beginning of it i worked you know because uh, i was not an essential worker but i was an expendable worker so I worked through it with no mask or anything like that because, you know, whatever. Um, now, now I've lost my job. Even the millionaires that I work for are cutting back on their construction. So they're, not, do do they're not paying their bills, you know, because do they, do do? they don't need to pay. You know, they have the billionaire beach houses. They don't need to have that ready for the fall and winter. They're going to pick it back up in the spring. But I'm out of work until then or have to find another job, which is good luck with that. But, again, when are the American people going to see this as a country – is being under attack by the people that are running it, are attacking the American people. And, you know, you're going to lose your homes. You already lost your jobs. When are we going to wake up and take, and, you know, we really got to revolt. It's been over 200 and something years. It, it's, and this has been going on for at least 100 of this corruption with the Rockefeller Foundation and the Bill Gates well, is George, doing whatever he wants. George, I have, to, I, have to, I have to cut you off there because we're, we're about to head out. But I thank you for your call and definitely hear your frustration, and I'm sure – People across our area are feeling that same frustration without any relief forthcoming. People are out of work. Even as the economy starts to gradually reopen, people's hours are cut. They're not getting that full income. So I thank you for calling in. I know we have at least one other caller on the line, but I think we're going to have to wrap up today because we're coming up on the end of the show. Thank you to everyone for listening to City Watch today. I'm your host, David Brand. I hope you have a great rest of the day today. I want to thank my guests, John Welsh. 
Representative Carolyn Maloney, Legal Aid Staff Attorney Ellen Davidson. I also want to thank our engineer, Sean Rhodes, for manning the controls today, doing a great job. My co-host, Jeff Simmons, will be back next week with another really great show. Please wear your mask, wash your hands. We're still all in this together. And happy birthday, Mom. listener and supporter of WBAI. I'm a student at NYU and I live in New York City. And I want to shout out to the other young listeners of WBAI. We have to help keep the station going. And the easiest way to do it is through the WBAI buddy system. If you donate as little as $10 a month, you have proactively promoted free speech radio. Go to the website WBAI.org, click the donate button, and make a difference. Hey, what's going on? This is Tito Nieves. I want you all to know that I listen to Consabor Latino, Montuneando con Marisol, alternating Sundays from 3 to 6 on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. Listen live. Also, I'm archived when I miss the show. You know what I love about this show? They inform me about everything. Who recorded, who sang, who composed. And you know why shows like this, they're not around anymore. That's why they've been existing for 34 years. And you know what? I like it like that all the time. <laughs> Hi, this is Mitch Jezerich inviting you to join us on this radio station for Pacifica's live coverage of the Republican National Convention starting Monday, August 24th and going through Thursday, August 27th starting each night at 7 p.m. on the West Coast and 10 p.m. on the East. We'll have the main speeches, we'll talk to progressives, and yes, we'll talk to conservatives too, and we'll be taking your calls. So join us for Pacifica Radio's coverage of the Republican National Convention. I poured out that day the torrent of my long accumulating discontent with such vehemence and indignation that I, I stirred myself, as well as the rest of the party, to do and dare anything. Elizabeth Cady Stanton on the eve of jumping into the fray. August 26th marked the 100th anniversary of women winning the vote after fighting for it for 75 years. WBAI will celebrate with six hours of programming from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. with authors, historians, dramatic readings, a play, period music, and more. We'll make this history come alive and find out what it has to teach us for today. That's Wednesday, August 26th, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. For a schedule, go to WBAI.org. New York City, 2020 is a huge opportunity to make our voice heard. This year, we have the power to decide our city's future, not just for the next four years, but for the next 10 by getting counted in the census. The census is about power, money, and respect for our communities. If our city is undercounted, we risk being underrepresented, especially our communities of color. In 2010, only 62% of New Yorkers responded to the census, with the lowest response rates in our black and brown communities. In 
2020, I'm going to tell you something. We can let this happen again. If you want to stand up to the status quo and the five people in power who wants to silence us, start by getting counted in the census. The census is safe, easy for everyone. And remember, the citizenship question is off the census. No matter what anybody tells you, immigrants with or without papers count too. Mi gente presente. Go to my2020census.gov now and fill out 10 simple questions to get counted. Hi, this is Bobby Humphrey. You're listening to WBA.